0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 125, The Visions of Coleco, Part 2. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. hello. We started off with this wonderful leather company. It then decided it wanted to branch into this mysterious land of video game. Put out these wonderful consoles leading to happiness and joy for all. They completely and utterly dominated the video game industry and continued to do so up into the modern era. At least that's how it is in the alternate reality that we really wish would have happened. But instead, we had to leave with Pong, and then a great video game crash. Really, things didn't go too well for them.
1: Well, I mean, they had moments where things went very well for them. They were caught up in part in circumstances beyond their control, in part by their own hubris in the direction that they felt they could take the market. It was a combination of both. They could have been potentially Nintendo if they had managed to hold on during the lean years as they got involved in the programmable market just as the crash was taking hold. But honestly, I don't think that would have happened. They really didn't have the spark. You know, Nintendo, part of what made Nintendo work was the original product. It was the Mario. It was the Zelda. Even the Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. It was the genius of the Nintendo designers. While, as we'll see, Coleco did a very good job of bringing in designers, in fact, was the company really in the West that really delineated the concept of a game designer as a separate discipline from other game creation disciplines, even though they had a lot of talented people They were stuck on licensing and they were stuck on licenses and they were stuck being very much just a toy company extending its toy business into a new realm rather than something like Nintendo, which also was a toy company before it was a video game company. But really did push in that new direction and hire innovative designers and all of that really kept things going.
0: Where we left off last time, we had them getting into dedicated consoles. They had this sort of like evolution of the Magnavox Odyssey where they had this card system that was actually kind of ingenious and an evolution of that technology where it's not programmable, but it still has these cards to sort of turn different features on and off and really makes it sort of the pinnacle of the solid state thing on top of the
1: whole Pong tank, so on and so forth. Right. They had uh, really invested in video games quite heavily, as we did talked about. That came back to bite them very badly when that entire ecosystem collapsed. Just as we'll see in later periods of Coleco history, it was a combination of external and internal forces. There was the dock worker strike that we talked about, and that was beyond their control. They had no way of controlling that their holiday allotments were suddenly not getting where they should. They also overinvested in a market that was never going to be much more than a flash in the pan because you were going to have this constantly improving technology, the limits of dedicated gameplay, which means that you can't upgrade a system through add-on games, not even in something like the Telstar Arcade that had the cartridges could you update it beyond that limited feature set within the LSI itself. So when you have technology shifting and prices falling and all of that, you're just left with product that's worthless and grows worthless too fast and a public that gets tired of buying yet another system for 60 70 $80 every year just so that they can play one more variation of Pong than the one that came before. It was never going to work. They were kind of stuck in that vein because they were not an electronics company. They were not an engineering company. So while a company like Fairchild or a company like Atari was going to move on and was going to go into the programmables and the swapping of ROM cartridges and all of that, Coleco was just stuck in a mode that wasn't going to work. However, they were still a toy company. They were still a company that was learning to navigate electronic toys more generally. They were a company that was starting to hire individuals that had some experience with electronics. You may recall that we had discussed how their original game, the Telstar, was created by an outside company, Alpex Computer. Well, after that was a hit, they started bringing more designers and more engineers in, starting to put together teams to get into other areas. Even as the company was taking a huge loss in fiscal 1978, which even touched off an SEC investigation, They were already laying the groundwork for their comeback, and they didn't stay down for long at all. By fiscal 1979, and just for reference, I believe their fiscal years actually ended in March. So fiscal 1979 would be ending in March 1979, mostly covering 1978. By fiscal 1979, they were already very much back on top. There's uh, a few people involved in this story, but probably the most important person on the design side was a gentleman by the name of Eric Bromley. Bromley is going to be the dominant player in our story in this second part of Coleco here because he was really the person in charge of everything that the company did moving forward in electronics. Now, he did not design it all himself. He did not engineer any of it because he wasn't an engineer. But what he was is a person that had some experience with formal logic, some experience with technology, and just had an uncanny knack for knowing what was going to sell. He was also a somewhat abrasive individual, but he was brash and opinionated and forceful. Whether Coleco really was that Jewish deli mentality that we briefly mentioned last time that one of the employees had talked about— whether that's overstating it or not, there's no doubt that someone like Bromley, who was not a people person but was still able to be very forceful in the way he put forth his vision, was able to flourish in this kind of setting because like Jim Gordon said with that whole quote about it was like a Jewish deli who who yelled loudest and last got their way, Bromley was definitely able to, metaphorically speaking, yell loudest and longest. He ended up having really direct access to Arnold Greenberg, president and co-CEO, as a result of this. Bromley had actually been a logic professor at Utica College, formal logic. But of course, formal logic, even though it is a construct that came out of the philosophy tradition, is obviously something that became very central to computers and computer logic, because that's what computers are, and, or, and not all of these uh, different Propositions, you know. NAND. NAND, yes, negative and. Because uh, computers that are doing more than calculating are making a series of logical leaps. If this, then this. If this, then not this. If not this, then this. All that can be represented in that uh, binary language of ones and zeros. He was a, a kind of starving professor type. He was looking for a way to make some more money, and he had a friend who suggested to him, well, you know, these coin-op games, we're talking the early 70s here. We're not even talking necessarily video games at this point. These coin-operated games are going solid state. They're starting to be electronic games in arcades. In coin-op, you know logic. If you know formal logic, you can basically design one of these simple solid state arcade games and maybe make some money. So he thought about that and thought, hey, that's a good idea. And he actually put together an electronic dart game. Because, of course, darts are a staple of bars. Darts are rather messy sometimes with their little pointy bits. The throwing of said little pointy bits. Drunk people throwing pointy bits. Absolutely. It's a wonder everyone wasn't killed before the invention of electronic darts.
0: It's an amazing thing that they still aren't killed
1: when they use regular darts. (laughs) Exactly. That was something that had some appeal. Eventually, Electronic Dart Games would become very big in bars. Bromley was not the one responsible for this breakthrough. He tried marketing the game. It didn't do very well. It introduced him to the world of coin-operated entertainment, and so then he got employment as a designer at a series of coin-op companies, the last of which was Midway by the mid-1970s. From there, he transitioned to Coleco. He joined Coleco in 1976 when they were starting to staff up on people that had more expertise with designing these games so they wouldn't have to rely on outsiders as much. Mm -hmm. He arrived too late to have an impact on the Telstar. He might have been there right before it released. It was already designed. He had no impact on that. He became one of their principal electronic game designers after that. As I said, he's not an engineer. There were other people that did the engineering and did the programming on top of the engineering. As a designer, he was there. He and another guy named Mark Yasoloff were their primary electronics designers in this time period. Even though the video game was, thing was starting to fall apart, Mattel, we may recall, in 1977 had released Auto Race and Football, two electronic handhelds, little ones with LED displays, where you were using controls to guide an LED across the screen. And then there were various gameplay stylings of it where you pretended it was a football. Running back, carrying the ball down the field, or a vehicle weaving in and out of other vehicles in a race. But it was really just red LED strips moving up and down or left and right across this very small game that you could hold in your hand. This was of great appeal to the toy industry because it had the cachet and the futuristic vibe of a video game. But it was so much cheaper. These were 20 to $30 products. This was right in the comfort zone of the toy companies. They all kind of got on this bandwagon after Mattel pioneered, and Coleco was no different. Eric Bromley designed Coleco's knockoff, or takeoff, rather, on Mattel football, which was Electronic Quarterback, that they put out in 1978. Knockoff in the sense that was also a football game, but it was much more advanced. In football, you controlled a running back. You would move the running back across the different lanes of the LED screen that were all done up to look like it was a football field, while avoiding the other LEDs coming towards you that represent the opposing players, and you were trying to, you know, score a touchdown. Electronic quarterback was in some ways similar, but it allowed you to control three little LED lights this time, or strips of LED lights. Not three. Three. It gave you two blockers. In addition to your guy going down the field, it also implemented passing. Instead of running down the field, your main mode of moving down the field was passing the ball and hitting yet another LED strip further up the way while also controlling your blockers to try to keep the defense off of you. So, in some ways, a lot more like how football was really played at the time. I mean, obviously, there's both running and passing in football, but the passing game has, to my knowledge, I'm not huge in football. Baseball's my sport. But over time, the passing game has definitely been, I think, more important more of the time than the running game. So, that definitely felt like something that was new and better than what Mattel was offering. They emphasized this. They did a head to head commercial, which was very rare at the time. I mean, these days, we think about genesis does what nintendo don't very adversarial commercials exactly where you're directly comparing yourself to another product that wasn't really done in the toy industry in this time period mattel would do it a couple years later with the intellivision even with that it wasn't done often they did a commercial and we'll put it in the show notes i know it's out there on youtube so um we'll definitely put in the show notes that had two guys dressed up in these costumes that resembled Mattel's football and Electronic Quarterback, and basically as they keep listing off the features of Electronic Quarterback and all the things it has that Mattel game doesn't, the Mattel game guy gets smaller and smaller and smaller until he's finally you know, obliterated from the scene or whatever, something like that. They did a hard-charging commercial. It did really well. It sold about 3 million units over its life. That was probably not entirely in 1978, but I'm sure it, it did over a million in its first year. Just like that, uh, Coleco was uh, back on top in a new field. You know, they had stiff competition from Mattel, stiff competition from Milton Bradley. Some other companies were in there as well because this was the next gold rush. Everyone was moving to electronic, handheld, or tabletop games. But Coleco was able to become uh, one of the leaders, and Bromley was really the one that led the way. Because of this, Bromley got his own division, the Advanced Research and Development Group, or ARD which was separate from the rest of the Coleco design apparatus. It was separate from product development, which caused some tension, quite frankly, in the company. It allowed him to have a group of engineers, technicians, and programmers that worked directly for him. And even though there was still some other electronic game development going on at the same time, like what Mark Yosiloff was doing, from this point forward, Eric Bromley becomes the primary force in Coleco's electronic game strategy.
0: They went really heavy into handheld games, which were becoming big then.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Everything became much more competition-focused. They sort of, in a way, pioneered the first really confrontational commercials as far as entertainment, kids' entertainment goes. So we can blame them Mm -hmm. for all of those uh, later commercials we got (laughs) to enjoy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, in fact, Michael Katz, who became the president of Sega of America in 1990 and was the guy who launched the Genesis and the guy who was behind the Genesis Does What Nintendon't do commercials. I mean, he didn't invent it because, you know, you go to your ad agency for that, but he was the president that said, we need to do competitive advertising. Ad agency, show me what you got. He actually was at Coleco in this time period. He uh, joined right around that time as the director of marketing communications. He was one of the primary marketing guys at the company. Coleco didn't have much of a marketing department at the time. Arnold Greenberg took care of the marketing, I think, mostly on his own. But they were starting, now that they were moving into these new product categories, they were starting to beef up. So Michael Katz was there when this commercial aired. He had nothing to do with it. He arrived after it had been shot, but before it had aired. I do think that that had some impact on him. It wasn't definitive in his doing those commercials later because he also came up in foodstuffs, breakfast cereal, and that kind of thing. I mean, competitive ads went way back, so he already had that background. You know, this was just another point of reference for Cats when he did Genesis Does What Nintendon't. I mean, that's pretty significant.
0: You know what I always find fascinating with any one of our stories? It's just how interweaved all these characters are. He said he, oh, yeah. he came from Coleco and then went to Sega. And it's just like all these same people yeah. are in the same industry and they're just sort of floating around company to company. Oh. And it's just insane just how oh inter- absolutely microcosm of game people
1: <laughs> and game companies, game ideas, and how they just sort of proliferate everywhere. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, Michael Katz, before he was at Coleco, he was at Mattel and he's taken credit for instigating their move into handheld games there, and he was also uh, at Jack Trammell's Atari before he was at Sega. So yeah, I mean, it it all circles back around. It's it's a relatively small industry. Today, it's a little bigger than it was in some ways. Just employee headcounts are much bigger at a lot of the major companies, but even today, it's still a pretty small industry overall in terms of the people and how they move around. Yeah, so they got the electronic quarterback, and then from there— they created a series of head-to-head games. So all of these simple LED games were pretty much one-player games where you're controlling your LED or maybe two or three of them, like you're an electronic quarterback. Then there are uh, machine-controlled LEDs. You know, it's a very solitary experience. There were some tabletop games that expanded beyond that, like uh, Milton Bradley Simon, for instance, uh, that could be played by multiple people. But the handheld sports games were kind of one-player. So then in 1979, Bromley's team starts working on head-to-head sports games. So these are really tabletop models rather than pure handheld models because they're a little longer and they're made for you and a friend to be sitting like on opposite ends of a small table and you each have your controls oriented in your direction. But they do head-to-head games where now you and your friend are each controlling their own LEDs in games like football and basketball and baseball and all of that. Again, this is something that Mattel's not offering right away, so it provides them another way to kind of stand out from the crowd. So Coleco is a company, I think, in this time period that we'll see, even going back to the Telstar video game, they're a company that is not a leader, they don't go into a product category first. They got into dedicated consoles after Atari had success with Home Pong, let alone what Magnavox had been doing for years before that. They got into electronic handhelds after Mattel made them big. And Of course, uh, we know we're leading up to ColecoVision, and we'll talk about it in depth in a little bit. But of course, they only got into programmable consoles after they had been successful for a couple of years. Coleco is not a company that innovates in terms of establishing a new product category. But if they're going to enter a product category, they're not just going to imitate what the other guy's doing except cheaper. They're always looking to try to undercut the other guy on price. Doing it cheaper is part of their mantra and part of their way of doing business. But they don't just want to do it cheaper. They want to do it cheaper, and they want to do it just a little bit better.
0: You know what that sounds like to me?
1: <laughs> what does that sound
0: like? That sounds very much to what the Japanese did Yes. with their development of all sorts of technology. They may not be the first into the field, but they take it and they refine it and they perfect it. That seems to be a trend I'm starting to notice here with Coleco. They took the dedicated console things that we have with Magnavox and they perfected it. They took handhelds and perfected it.
1: Mm-hmm. There's some truth to that. I think it's a good comparison. It's not a perfect comparison because they don't optimize the technology quite to the same extent that, say, the Japanese do when they decide to get involved with a new technology. I like the analogy. It's a very similar kind of idea. They're going to do it a little cheaper, and they're going to do it a little better, but they're not going to set the world on fire with some brand new thing that nobody else has thought of before. Another interesting thing about the head-to-head games, they were still LED games, but they had certain elements in the game that were done instead with a vacuum fluorescent display, or a VFD. Are you very familiar with vacuum fluorescent displays? I
0: don't think I've heard of it before this moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've seen them back in the day. I'm not a technical person, It works in a similar manner to a cathode ray tube, but it operates at a much lower voltage than a cathode ray tube. And you're not going to be doing, you know, a complete rasterized image like you would do with a CRT. It works on the same principle that you have a vacuum tube, you have a cathode and an anode, you have electrons moving from the cathode to an anode through a vacuum tube, through a triode. Uh, There's a grid in there for uh, amplification. Then those electrons are being shot at that anode, which is uh, phosphor-coated. With those different phosphors, you can have different colors. VFD displays were very common in uh, stereo equipment, in VCRs. You know, like on your VCR, for instance, is a great example. Some VCRs used led displays you know for things like the clock and these would be kind of very angular and and very uh like a digital clock you would see or a digital watch yeah some of them had really sharp colorful displays and when i say colorful i don't mean necessarily rainbow colored but instead of an led you know that's this obnoxious red or an obnoxious yellow you know it has this kind of cool bluish white look And it's a little sharper and a little more what we would today uh, call looks more like a digital display than an LED display. A little more like something that today you would see on an LCD display, except back then they didn't have LCDs that could do this. But that's a little what it would look like today. Oftentimes, you know, bluish white or nice cool green or brighter red that looks a lot nicer than what an LED could do. You might see that on a VCR clock. You might see that on a stereo system. A great example of that is the stereo systems when the sound levels are measured on a stereo. And you would have a little digital display. You'd have these multicolored green, red, and yellow bars, you know, representing the levels of the stereo. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about? I think I do. I actually have
0: that kind of thing set up on my mixer, actually, I think, with the uh, levels there. You have these bars that are pretty well-defined, and they go up and down based off of the thing. I think if you actually think yep. of some of the old movies from the 80s, if you look at any of their stereo
1: equipment, exactly, that's a very good example of this kind of display. Absolutely. Today, that's all accomplished with LCDs because LCD technology has moved further along. But back then, LCDs were very expensive, very finicky, usually just black lines on a gray background, you know, you couldn't do all of this stuff with LCDs back then, but VFDs, you could. It basically operated on the same principle as as a television, except lower power. So you got these nice, crisp, colorful, glowy, because it's a vacuum tube, uh, glowy images that you could generate that just looked very cool and very futuristic at the time. You could do better defined shapes and shapes in many more colors, and you could do LEDs, You know, you could actually do fully filled-in, colorful objects, which at that time was not possible with LCDs. They used this VFD stuff in the head-to-heads just for certain elements like the score on the games. As they got more used to this VFD technology and working with it, their next phase was to take this and actually create games using VFD elements. So, of course, now we're getting into the 1980 period, Video game systems are taking off. The uh, programmables had come out in the late 70s, but it really wasn't until Space Invaders hit big in 1980 on the Atari VCS that the programmable video game market really became a big, robust market. The arcades are booming. Again, Coleco is looking at this, and Eric Bromley is looking at this, and is saying, okay, how can we get in on this without doing a programmable system, because they're kind of interested in this programmable system thing, but, you know, they already had a disaster with the video games once. If they're going to get into video games again, they want to be able to do it well, and they want to do it in a way that represents what's going on in the arcade, in coin-op, very well. Because if there's one weakness Atari has, it's that it cannot do that. They played around with some programmable systems. The chipset that went into the Intellivision, Coleco was actually involved in the creation of that. Because that chipset wasn't created by Mattel. It was created by General Instrument, the same people that did the Pong on the chips. So Coleco had a relationship with them, and they were looking at programmables. They were providing feedback and input on this programmable chipset. ...that General Instrument was doing... ...but they decided that it wasn't quite powerful enough... ...to provide arcade quality graphics... ...and Eric Bromley didn't really want to get involved with that... ...so they ended up not using that chipset at all... ...and then Mattel did end up using that chipset. They wanted to do something better than Atari... ...and even better than Mattel... ...but the price point wasn't there. So what they did instead is... ...okay, we're in handhelds. These arcade conversions, coin-op conversions... ...are doing very well on the VCS... ...on the Atari system... But they look terrible. You know, Space Invaders on the VCS, it does as well as it can. It's a miracle that it works at all in a system that technically is only supposed to be able to display five objects at once. It plays okay, you know, in terms of the gameplay, but it looks terrible. Very blocky, very slow, very annoying. Yeah, and just muddy, ugly colors as well. Bromley's like, well, how can we get in on this coin-op craze but make something a little more impressive and play to our existing strengths? So they come up with this idea of doing these tabletop arcade cabinets, and these are really wonderful. We'll find some footage of them to put in the show notes. They created these little miniature arcade cabinets. They licensed some of the big games of the day, including Pac-Man, which was so huge, and including some Sega games. They licensed Galaga... That, of course, was a big uh, hit. You know, they've got the Namco stuff going. They've got some Sega stuff going. Eric Bromley, since he came out of the coin-op world, he has connections in that world, and that helps them secure some of this. They do Frogger at one point as well, which was a big hit in the arcade. What they do is they create these little tabletop devices that are shaped like an arcade cabinet, like the top part of an arcade cabinet, because obviously it's not floor-mounted units. They actually use the actual cabinet art, ...on these little miniature cabinets. Then for the display, it's a vacuum fluorescent display. The colors just look very bright and very glowy and very nice. It's a world apart from what's going on on the VCS. Now, sometimes the gameplay can't be as sophisticated as on the VCS... ...because the VCS has more processing power. The games just look great. They're cheaper because they're these low-portable systems... You know, they've got the cute cabinets. They're really quite wonderful, and they start making these. So that's kind of their first entree back into the world of video games, so to speak. Though at this point, it's not video games. It's this line of, of what they called mini-arcade systems, the Coleco mini-arcade. Yeah, that's a cool thing.
0: It is. It's, again, it shows that Coleco is really innovating, not as far as creating something new, but taking something that's existing and perfecting it.
1: They're still highly valued collector's items today. There have been modern updates of these as well. I haven't been in a toy store, but I I think there's still some variation of this kind of stuff that's still for sale. Not from Coleco, obviously, because they're gone. I mean, this was just an incredibly popular concept, a very interesting concept, and they did very well with it. Now, even as they're doing this with the mini arcades, they are still looking at the video game industry because clearly the VCS is blowing up. Mattel's getting into the market, even though Mattel isn't anywhere near Atari in terms of sales and profits. Mattel is doing well in this. Coin-op games are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, they want to catch a piece of this. What's really stopping them is price. Because they really want to do something that is... uh, Eric Bromley, if he's going to do something, and Arnold Greenberg, who, like I said, he has kind of direct access to even outside sometimes of the official chain of command, which would irk people in other departments. Both Eric Bromley and Arnold Greenberg are in agreement that if they're going to get into this business, they want to do something that is nearly arcade perfect. If they're going to do something that's nearly arcade perfect, it's going to take a lot of RAM. Memory is expensive. Memory is always expensive. Because of Moore's Law, memory is always going down in price, but memory is also expensive. Always very expensive if you want to be at the high end of speed and capacity. So RAM is what's holding them back. They're playing around with a lot of other things. Eric Bromley does have people working on a kind of a VCS knockoff that would be fully compatible with the VCS. You know, maybe making a small enhancement or two. They're thinking about this, but there's nothing that's really working for them. Then there's uh, his main engineer... His main electrical engineer, hardware engineer in ARD, Robert Schink, starts fooling around at home. He's uh, very interested in what's happened in home computers. He can kind of see that computers are going to be something of the future, and he wants to build something that will not only allow him to play around with computers, but also allow his children to learn computers and become comfortable and familiar with that kind of technology. As a result, he ends up building his own machine based around the Z80 processor, which is a very, very popular 8-bit processor in this period because it's uh, compatible with Intel's 8-bit processors. It was created by uh, Federico Fagin, who was the uh, creator of the 808 and 8080 architecture at Intel, then founded his own company and created the Z80, which maintained full backward compatibility with the 8080. While being better in a lot of ways because he was continuing to refine it. So the Z80, because the Intel processors had appeared in the early uh, kit computers like the Altair, and the Z80 was kind of a better version of that, even though Intel didn't have the dominance then that they would later have with the Wintel alliance, they had kind of an early lead that was later overtaken in large part by Moss and Motorola. They had an early lead here as well. And so the Z80 became very popular in a lot of applications, and particularly popular in arcade uh, systems, particularly popular in Japan, where a lot of the arcade systems were being made. Shink created the system using a Z80 processor and a Texas Instruments graphics chip. He had created the system for his own edification. At the same time, Bromley was pushing more and more for them to try to get into this Atari market. So Shink realized, well, I've I've got this great system that I've kind of kludged together. I think it's something that could work. And so he actually did the typical Bromley thing. I'm talking about how Bromley is always uh, bypassing people in the chain of command to go talk to Arnold Greenberg directly. Well, Shink did the same thing. He uh, created a little Pac-Man clone on his kludge system. He brought it in to the office, called Arnold Greenberg, Said he had something to show him, and then showed him the system and said, "This right here can be our next system." Greenberg kind of agreed with that. Bromley may not have been entirely happy that he was bypassed, uh, and there were still some arguments back and forth on whether to really use his E80 or use something else and other stuff like that. Bromley, who was already looking to try to do something and had realized that RAM was finally cheap enough to do something, then Shank having this thing already together. Between all of that you end up with the ColecoVision. Robert Shink's story in all of this is actually not very well known. A lot of credit needs to go to Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, who actually tracked down Shink and interviewed him. I wouldn't say there's discrepancy between Shink's telling and Bromley's telling. Bromley has never taken credit for the ColecoVision hardware. He does take credit for... Pushing Coleco to adopt that hardware and pushing Greenberg to adopt that hardware? Clearly, Shink also takes credit for that. I mean, Shink is the one that actually, you know, created it at his own homes. I think there's some truth to that. I think it's fair to say that Bromley was starting to push for a video game system at this time, and Shink acknowledges that as well. But it does seem like Shink was the main one to uh, push this idea forward. Though Bromley, to his credit, certainly took it and ran with it. They've got a hardware now, Z80 powered, good amount of RAM, that is going to be able to do near arcade perfect graphics and gameplay, or at least near arcade perfect for games kind of released in the 80, 81, maybe into 82 time period. Not all of these games will be able to have all of the features, they won't necessarily be able to have all the levels or all of the gameplay elements because you still run into the hard limits of ROM cartridge capacity and RAM and all of that, but at least you're going to have something that is hard to distinguish from what's on the screen in coin-op. If you're going to do that, if you're going to have an arcade quality system, obviously you're going to want to have some arcade games, some actual coin-op games to go with it. It's great to have this hardware and be able to play Bob's Fun Racing game, But the point is to show people that, hey, look, now in the home you can do exactly what you're doing in the arcade. And that means you need coin-operated licenses. And
0: that costs money.
1: Yes. Though, you know, Coleco's got money. I mean, they're doing well. They've got the handhelds. They've got these uh, mini arcades they're starting up. They've got money. They've always been a licensing company. We may remember all the way back to when they did Howdy Doody and Davy Crockett Leathercraft kits. They've always been a licensing company. And they have that in, you know, Bromley has that connection. I don't think he's, you know, buddy, buddy, buddy with a lot of people in coin but he at least is able to make the introductions. A young guy by the name of Al Khan, who is the head of licensing at Coleco and later will go on to basically be Nintendo's entire licensing apparatus. And that is not an exaggeration through his company. Bromley makes the introductions, and then Alcon cuts licenses with some of these Japanese companies. Atari has already sewn up some of the bigger licenses. Shink did a Pac-Man prototype to show off what his system could do. Coleco does release a mini-arcade Pac-Man game, but Atari's already scooped up the rights to Pac-Man in the home. Atari's already scooped up the rights to a lot of the American games in the home, to the Williams games, to the Midway games which also, by extension, you know, helps with Space Invaders and Pac-Man, which those are Japanese games, and they did get the licenses from the Japanese companies. But, you know, they were released by Midway in the U.S. So kind of that side of it is already sewn up. They can't get quite the biggest hits in coin-op, because Atari already has those licenses. Bromley focuses in on two games specifically that he thinks will be absolutely crucial to proving his point about how the system can do just as well as a coin-op system. These two games are Turbo and Zaxxon, both from Sega. Turbo is a little bit obscure today. It was basically pole position before pole position. When people think of the classic rear-view, third-person racing game in two dimensions. Pole Position is what they really think of. But Pole Position came out 82 and 83. Turbo came from Sega in 1981. The graphics aren't quite as good. The gameplay is not quite as smooth because Pole Position had another year on it, obviously, in terms of technology improving. But Turbo was kind of the first racing game that started perfecting this rear-view third-person perspective, and forward-scrolling, driving with sprite scaling so that car, your opponent cars seem like they're coming closer and closer to you as you pass them. It was kind of the first really impressive racing game of that time. Certainly something that an Atari VCS would never be able to do very well. Zaxxon, on the other hand, was brand new in 1982, in the first part of 82. Zaxxon was a scrolling shooter, but it used forced perspective. It was isometric to give it kind of a pseudo-3D look and a certain amount of depth where you could move your ship up and down to uh, go over and under obstacles in addition to left and right because it had that kind of isometric perspective. Of course, we'll put both Turbo and Zaxxon in the show notes. So again, that forced perspective isometric gameplay is not something a VCS could do well. So if you have Turbo and Zaxxon on the system... You've got two games with very unique graphical presentations and very advanced graphical presentations that is showing people that your system has arrived. So they license those. They get Cosmic Avenger from Universal. It's a pretty obscure game. It's a Scramble clone. You know, they get a few other B and C list games. They have some of their own licenses that they can make original games around, like they have a Smurfs license to do Smurfs toys. Coleco, even though they're getting more and more involved in this electronic game thing, is still technically a toy company, though it's become much more of an electronic toy company as all of this stuff has continued to be successful. So they have some licenses like Smurfs that they can make games out of, but they don't really have that killer app, that big hit, because even though Turbo and Zaxxon are great for showing off what the system can do, Turbo's only a minor hit, and even though Zaxxon is a bigger hit, you know, it's still just, uh, you know, another shooting game in a sea of shooting games. It's not Space Invaders,
0: it's not Pac-Man, it's not one of the other
1: legendary games of the era. Exactly. They're still missing that really system-seller killer app program. Until Eric Bromley drinks too much tea and has to use a restroom.
0: That seems like a very dubious state of uh, inspiration.
1: (laughs) So, uh, as part of the swing through uh, all of these uh, Japanese companies, one of the companies that they call on is Nintendo. Now, this is Nintendo in 1981, in kind of earlier, mid-1981. This isn't Nintendo yet. This isn't playing with power. This is a company that has released a small number of knockoffs, of space invaders and Galaxian and games like that, they've done Space Firebird and Sheriff and Radar Scope. None of them have been particularly huge games. This isn't Nintendo yet. They're visiting everybody. They're trying to get whatever licenses they can. So Nintendo's on the list. They have a meeting. They meet with Yamauchi in this big formal conference room. They kind of set the framework for trying to do business together. You know, they have is. Uh, Part of these negotiations on one of these days, they have a meal. He drinks a lot of tea with the meal. They've been shown some of the Nintendo games, and they're kind of like, okay, whatever, because really, Nintendo's games at that time were quite frankly, okay, whatever. After drinking too much tea, Bromley needs a bathroom break. Well, it turns out that the closest bathroom, I guess, is on the next floor up. I don't know why that is. I don't care. But he had to go up to another floor in order to use the bathroom. Either on his way to the bathroom or on his way back, he noticed an arcade cabinet in a room on that floor. Being curious, he decided to walk in and see what it was. He was greeted by this new game, not yet released, with the strange name of Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong? Who played Donkey Kong? No one played Donkey Kong. That's just silly. (laughs) Well, no one had played Donkey Kong yet. He was able to see the game, he was able to get the engineers there to show him the game, and he was like, this looks really good. This looks like a great game, and we're stealing a march here. We're stealing a march on the Ataris of the world because Nintendo's not even showing this game off yet, and we have a chance to make a deal right here. So he goes back down, you know, to continue the meeting with Yamuchi, president of Nintendo, and he basically says, I want Donkey Kong. Bromley, and a lot of people that worked at the company have said this, Bromley is a guy that really knows a hit when he sees one. He had an uncanny ability to look at a product and tell that it was going to be really good. Yamauchi was exactly the same way. Yamauchi never played video games, never wanted anything to do with video games, was not in the least interested in video games. But he knew a hit when he saw one. He knew a hit when he saw one. Yamuchi knows what he has with Donkey Kong.
0: He's not partnering with that easily.
1: Exactly. So uh, according to Bromley's recollection, he basically said, you know, you can have Donkey Kong for 200000 advance and a $2 per unit royalty. That's a lot, especially back then. That was a whole lot. More than they had ever guaranteed, especially the advance. Like a royalty's a royalty. You know, you can quibble on the edges of that, but it's a pretty predictable thing. But that advance that was a huge advance they had never guaranteed anybody that much money according to bromley and you know this is years after the fact so he might be off on the numbers but it's still a good approximation of the scale of the thing according to bromley they had never paid an advance for a license of more than 5000 to that point this is many 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 times so that is roughly 40
0: times what they have paid in the past
1: Yes. Which is a staggering, staggering number to have. You're taking a chance that the game is actually going to sell. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Because it basically it has to be a hit at that point to recoup that advance. And not just a hit.
0: We're talking out-of-the-park hit.
1: Exactly. Bromley, of course, does not have the authority to make that deal on his own. And by the way, Yamuchi says high-pressure tactic which uh, Yamauchi was good at, he said that for this deal to go through, this was about 10 in the morning, he said that the advance needed to be in Nintendo's accounts by midnight, where there was no deal. High-pressure sales tactic. Yamauchi has nothing to lose, because he figures Atari is licensing all the big hits, so if Donkey Kong's a big hit in the arcade, which he thinks it will be, Atari's going to come knocking, and Atari's going to pay them. Coleco is desperate for product, and Yamauchi probably senses that Coleco is desperate for product. So he figures, I'm going to make them give me lots of money, and I'm going to give them no time to think about it. If they turn me down, Atari's going to pay me later anyway. So it's no lose for him. Bromley doesn't have the uh, authority to have $200,000 wired into Nintendo's bank account. So uh, (laughs) for a transaction that side, he needs Greenberg. He needs Arnold Greenberg to approve it. He rushes back to Tokyo. He's in Kyoto to meet with Nintendo, but his hotel is in Tokyo. So he rushes back, you know, on the train to his hotel, calls up Greenberg. Of course, with the time difference, it's like 3 a.m. in Hartford, something like that. Calls him up and says, you know, this is the deal. This is the game. This is the game we need to bundle with our system. We don't have a system seller. This will be our system seller. But I need you to wire $200,000 right now.
0: What the heck are you thinking, man?
1: That's three in the morning and
0: you want $200,000? We just barely spent $5,000 of license stuff and you want 200000 You woke me up from my nap. For $200,000, what is wrong with you?
1: Well, you know, there might be some people that would respond that way. I mean, there definitely would be some people that would respond that way. But Greenberg was a shrewd marketer and a shrewd product guy as well. By this time, Bromley had Greenberg's pretty unshakable confidence just because his ARD division had produced so many hits for Coleco. Basically, Arnold Greenberg, just once he kind of got over the disorientation (laughs) of being woken up in the middle of the night (laughs) to hear this news, just said, is it really that good? And Bromley said yes. So he thought about it for a moment and then said, you know, I'll wire the money as soon as the banks open. Obviously, he can't really wire the money at 3 in the morning. He said he'd wire it as soon as the banks open, and so they made the deal. But Japanese contracts are often rather fluid. Define fluid. Japanese contracts are usually, uh, at least in that time period, it may be different today, they're usually very short and very light on detail and rely very much on mutual understanding between the parties that is not reduced to writing. What this means is that it can be very easy to get out of a contract without actually breaching the contract. The most famous example of this in video games, of course, is when Nintendo and Sony sign a deal to create the Nintendo PlayStation, and Nintendo decides that they gave up too much in the deal and basically just cancels the deal. There's really nothing Sony can do about it except build their own console with Resident Evil and Tomb Raider. And Silent Hill. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they really didn't have any legal recourse against Nintendo just because of the vagueness of Japanese contracts.
0: But they did have a long-term game of pretty much kicking their butt with the PlayStation.
1: Right, but uh, that's just to say, though, that they're easy to get out of. So they have this deal, but then once Atari gets wind of Donkey Kong, Atari comes along and tries to outbid Kalico. And basically steal the license out from under them. It's a pretty much done deal at the at the next CES after that meeting. Bromley uh, learns that Atari's going to get it, and uh, and according to Bromley, and you know he might be dramatizing things some and all of this, but uh, according to Bromley, then he basically tried to call up Yamuchi in his suite. Yamuchi's daughter answered and said Yamuchi wasn't available, and he basically just bared his soul and pleaded with Yoko Arakawa. Uh, who was married to Minoru Arakawa, the president of Nintendo of America, basically pleaded and saying, you know, this thing is our dream and, you know, we really need this or it's not going to work and we're going to take such good care of it because we need it so much. And please don't back out of the deal. And she said, well, you know, be here in 15 minutes. And then they talked and he won the deal back. You know, was it as dramatic as he makes it out to be? I don't know. He might like I mean, I haven't interviewed him personally, but he might be the type that likes embellishing a story. But the point is, he got it back. Coleco Vision, as they decide to call it. According to Bromley, they were always planning to give it a different name. Same thing as in television or Activision or whatnot. It's like you have vision from television and then you put something in front of it. In this case, your company name, Coleco. As he puts it, it was just basically... prototype code name and they were going to come up with something better and then they never did so it became ColecoVision. (laughs) You know it's just sort of odd to think of what
0: we know of the history of the name. Really we are talking about the Connecticut Leather Company Vision.
1: That's true. (laughs) ColecoVision is going to launch in August of 1982 and it is going to launch bundled with what it turns out is one of the hottest games of the fall of 1981 Donkey Kong. Now, Donkey Kong was not exclusive to the ColecoVision because Coleco actually got the total console rights for all the consoles, and they're not just going to hold on to something like that for only the ColecoVision because there are so many VCS systems out there. there's so many Intellivision systems out there. This game is going to be so hot that they're going to want to make sure it's on everything. Mike Katz, who we talked about before, the marketing guy, he has said in interviews that Donkey Kong was exclusive to the ColecoVision in the first six months in that first holiday season. He is actually misremembering. It was released on everything at the same time. However, the ColecoVision is so far in advance of what the VCS or the Intellivision can do graphically that even though it's released on all of these systems, the clearly superior version, the clearly nearly arcade perfect graphical version of this game is on the ColecoVision, and Donkey Kong is going to be the highlight and the focus of their launch. So even though you can get it on other systems, they're still making it very clear that if you want Donkey Kong you really want to play it on the ColecoVision and not on these other systems.
0: I don't know about you, kids, but I'm going to be buying that console over somebody else's other consoles.
1: Yeah. So in August 1982, they sell out everything they're able to produce. They're only able to produce about 550,000 consoles as they ramp up production, but they sell out. So that first holiday, they don't do as well as Atari or even Mattel because those companies have well-developed manufacturing. The demand is very clearly there. It's a very powerful system. It showcases Donkey Kong very well. It's a hit. What can I say? It's a hit. And in the first part of 1983, big consoles are still very much a seasonal item. You get most of your sales at Christmas time. First half of the year, sales are not the important sales. But still, in the first half of the year, they are outselling the VCS, now the 2600, it's called at this point, and the Intellivision. They're outselling them both. Things are just looking great. Then they throw it all away because they decide to go beyond ColecoVision. How do you go beyond ColecoVision? ColecoVision squared? What is especially in this time period, considered even more desirable in terms of an electronic entertainment device than a programmable console. Digital watch? No. No longer a neat idea. How about a computer? That's right. A home computer that can play all the games and balance the checkbook too. And I can
0: download recipes onto wonderful ticker tape in order to read my ticker tape as I try to cook this wonderful meal.
1: (laughs) That's right. Something like that. They thought people would store recipes on them. It was pretty crazy.
0: The entire concept was pretty crazy, and really it doesn't work until you get the internet and things like iPads and stuff.
1: Yeah. Now, you know, the ColecoVision was kind of a combination. It was Robert Schink's technology. It was... Eric Bromley's vision was in there somewhere, even though it wasn't necessarily, you know, entirely his idea. I wish was going behind his back and everything. Coleco's home computer, the Adam, the name Adam, A D A M, is entirely the brainchild of Eric Bromley. When they were doing the Coleco vision, they knew that they would want to expand it in the future and potentially turn it into a home computer. It was the Times. Already, by the time they were releasing in Christmas 1982, the Commodore VIC-20 had come out, the Atari 8-bit computers were out. There was already this idea that the market was moving towards home computers. Computers were the thing. Exactly. They knew that they wanted to put an expansion capability into the ColecoVision. So they left an expansion port and the ability to release expansion modules. The Atom computer started out As just that, it was going to be an expansion to the ColecoVision that turned it into a computer. And it wasn't the only device that used the expansion module. They very famously created an Atari VCS adapter that you could plug into the expansion module and basically turned your ColecoVision into a 100% compatible Atari VCS or 2600. So you could play all the Atari games on your ColecoVision. Atari sued them. But the suit settled and the device stayed on the market because, you know, clean room reverse engineering. We've talked about that before. As long as you don't actually violate a patent, if you recreate it yourself in a clean room, you're fine. They also created a uh, driving controller component that fit into the expansion slot. The logic there being that if they're saying that they're providing arcade experiences, arcade quality experiences, obviously the graphics and the audio are a big part of that, uh, but so are the control systems. So it's not just enough to say, look how Turbo runs with the sprite scaling and everything. You also want to be able to say, and you can drive it, you can play it just like you can play it in the arcade. So they released a a driving controller expansion module. They were going to release the Atom expansion module to turn it into a computer. Then they got uber ambitious. Again, they don't just want to do what the other guy's doing. They want to try to do it a little better. So they come up with this idea that they are going to release a computer that for under $600 is going to provide you the computer, a real keyboard, a drive unit. I say drive unit because it's kind of a disk drive, but kind of not. We're going to get there. And a letter quality printer. Printer too, on top of this. All for under $600. Yeah, something's got to give there. (laughs) But you see, this got everyone very, very excited because they were offering a complete computer package for under $600. Remember, the Apple II is still like a, there may have been a small price cut by this point, but it was still essentially a $1,200 machine. You didn't even get, you know, half that stuff. It was going to ship with some introductory software as well, bundled with the system. It was going to have a built in word processor in addition to a full operating system. All of this for under $600.
0: Yeah, something's got to give.
1: Yeah, but the market went nuts for this. This was exciting. This was unprecedented. Anticipation was high going into the fall of 1983 when this was going to be released. As you said, something had to give. And that something is that the hardware just couldn't come together, and they couldn't get it to work right, particularly the drives on the system. They couldn't do a disk drive and keep it under $600 with all of that other stuff. They were going to release, I think, a, a disk drive separately, but they couldn't include a disk drive. They had to use some kind of tape technology they tried to use something that was a little more advanced, a little faster, and a little higher capacity than the standard tape drive that you would have gotten a couple of years earlier on an Apple II or something like that. The problem is that this technology did not work. The tapes were very fragile, and the drives just didn't work right. They had problems with the hardware. They had problems with the tape drives. As a result, they had manufacturing delays. They had planned to sell about 500,000 Atom computers for Christmas 1983. Ambitious goal? But a realistic goal because they were getting the orders. Everyone was excited about this. Fewer than 100,000, roughly 90,000 units reached retail at the end of 1983. It ended up being $725 instead of $525. And it was looking like it would probably need even more price increases ...to actually make the whole thing work financially. Oops. It was a disaster. Obviously, 1983 was also when the effects of the crash were being most felt. ColecoVision, even though it suffered some because of the crash, because how couldn't it? The crash was largely an Atari and Mattel system crash. It was less a ColecoVision crash because all of the third-party software that was overwhelming demand was primarily Atari software. It was 2600 software. There was not the same glut on the ColecoVision, and unlike the 2600 and the Intellivision, which at this point was very ancient technology, the VCS was essentially 1976 technology. It was released in 77, but it was essentially 1976 technology. The Intellivision was essentially 1978 technology. The ColecoVision was actually 1981-1982 technology. It was not a foregone conclusion that the ColecoVision and the ColecoVision market was going to collapse just because the 2600 market collapsed. The problem is Coleco was no longer focusing on the ColecoVision. Did it continue to be sold? Absolutely. Were they continuing to make games for it? They continued to make games for it even in 1984 when the market was virtually non-existent. They were not focusing their marketing efforts. They were not focusing their licensing efforts. They were not focusing their R&D efforts on the ColecoVision. They were putting all of their eggs in the basket of the Atom.
0: And we already established that that has major issues from a technical, financial, and
1: implementation standpoint. It was a devastating failure. Even though they were actually able to, over time, fix a lot of the defects and still come out with a system that, even though it was more expensive than originally advertised, was still pretty competitive, considering all you got with it. Once they missed that initial market demand, once all of that excitement— once you deflated, once you popped that balloon, deflated that balloon and let all the air out of the excitement around it, there was no recapturing that. You were no longer the hot new thing. Now the Commodore 64 is the hot new thing. Now, the price war that's driving computers to cheaper and cheaper and cheaper prices, instigated by Jack Trammell, is the hot new thing. The Atom's no longer the hot new thing. They missed their window. Even though they kind of recovered from a technical standpoint, they were never, ever going to recover from a marketing standpoint. It was an absolute bloodbath. Despite the fact that their sales tripled in 1983 across the entire company for reasons that we'll talk about in a little bit to $676 million from $193 million the year before. They lost $7.4 million in 1983. It only got worse from there. They lost $79.8 million in 1984. 79800000 million. Uh-huh. In 1984. Yeah, that's not good. ...as the continuing fallout of this continued to take effect. Because, of course, because they weren't really pushing the ColecoVision, even though there was potentially a chance for the ColecoVision to rise above what was happening with the 2600, Coleco had not positioned themselves to do that. By early 1984, they had sold 2 million ColecoVisions, which is phenomenal. You know, they only sold half a million in that first holiday season... Because that's all they could make. So in 83, uh, into the beginning of 84, they sold another 1.5 million systems. Triple the sales uh, of the previous year. That's wonderful. It's gaining momentum. But then in 84, the whole market's collapsing. They only sell about 200,000 systems in 1984 of the ColecoVision. Wow, that's insane. And the Atom has just failed to recover at all. They discontinue the Atom in January of 1985. They keep ColecoVision going through most of the rest of 1985 until finally, in October of 1985, they announced that they were leaving the video game business behind and discontinuing the ColecoVision. Think about that. October 1985 is when a little company called Nintendo is doing a test launch of this crazy new system new for the United States, called the Nintendo Entertainment System. Coleco is literally leaving the industry. Right when the industry is about to recover. Would they have beaten Nintendo? No, I don't think they would have. But Atari was able to stick in the market. The new Atari Corporation from Jack Trammell was able to stick in the market. ColecoVision was certainly as good or better a product than a lot of what Atari was offering. There was probably a window for them to keep going in that business and then maybe once things stabilize, do a more advanced system and try to be a serious competitor. But they were really beaten up by the Atom computer. They couldn't really afford to try to weather the market for video games because the Atom computer had destroyed them so thoroughly. So they got out. Interestingly, they were actually going to license ColecoVision to Nintendo in Japan. In 1982, they had meetings to license ColecoVision to Nintendo to release in Japan. They could not come to terms. They could not come to terms on a deal. So Nintendo told them, basically, and this comes from Bert Reiner, who was there as part of these negotiations. Yamauchi told them, okay, then we'll just create our own system. Bert Reiner and Leonard Greenberg, Leonard was the one that was there too, after they left, I mean, they didn't laugh in his face, but after they left... They kind of just laughed to themselves, and they were like, okay, yeah, sure, Nintendo's going to create their own video game system. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, about that. So, Coleco inadvertently launched Nintendo into the console business. <laughs> now, the Famicom is nothing at all like the ColecoVision in terms of its technology. But Masuki Uemura, the... Principal designer, the lead designer of the Famicom, has said that when they were going to create the Famicom, the ColecoVision was his primary inspiration for what the Famicom needed to be capable of to be a competitive system. So the Famicom was conceptually, not technically, but conceptually inspired by ColecoVision and was only created because Coleco and Nintendo couldn't come to terms on licensing ColecoVision.
0: And little did they know, Nintendo, a decade or so later, goes
1: through the same stuff with Sony. But it gets even better. After they failed to do a license with Nintendo, they conclude a license with Sega to release the ColecoVision in Japan. Now, it looks like Sega never actually marketed the ColecoVision in Japan. The deal must have subsequently fallen through. You know, Coleco took a sharp business hit. and. There's no evidence that Sega actually released it in Japan. But they did conclude a license to release it in Japan. That was announced in the trades. That happened. The SG-1000, Sega's first console that was later revamped as the Master System, uses a Z80 processor. It uses the same graphics chip as the ColecoVision. It is so close to being a ColecoVision that another company actually releases a 2-in-1 system that can play both Sega... SG-1000 games, and ColecoVision games. The SG-1000 and the Master System themselves are not compatible. There's other parts of the architecture that are different. But they use the same basic chips, and they're so close to each other that it's very easy to make a system that can play both. It is almost certain, there's no proof of this, but it is almost certain that the SG-1000, Sega's first programmable console, was based on the ColecoVision because they had the ColecoVision because they had done the licensing deal, with Coleco. They obviously just took that and copied it and changed it just a little bit so it wouldn't be infringing on what Coleco did. So Coleco created Sega's home console business. <laughs> Coleco created Nintendo's home console business. I mean, not, not exactly. I mean, that's obviously an oversimplification.
0: Right, but they're, they're the inspiration. They're the technology that people looked at and went, hey, this is pretty interesting. This is pretty cool. This is good. I want to emulate this. But they just through a licensing thing with Nintendo a spat with them. They go, oh, well, Nintendo's going to make a game. And then with the thing with Sega, they go, Yeah, we're going to effectively make the same thing as you and just run with it.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, (laughs) there you go. Coleco directly inspires those two. You know, just to wrap up Coleco kind of quickly, there's a couple other things I want to say. First of all, we didn't really talk about this, but I'd mentioned earlier that one thing that Coleco did is they really created the position of the game designer as a separate position from the game programmer. If you think back to the 2600, the Intellivision, games were created by a single person, and that person was a programmer and a designer and the artist and the sound guy and everything. Eventually, there started to be a little specialization. Atari started having artists and sound people do those part of the games. But the core idea that the designer and the programmer were the same person was very much ingrained ...in those companies, and the companies that spun out of that, like Activision, the early third-party companies. You may have an artist to help you, you may have a musician or a sound guy to help you, but you came up with the game concept, you came up with the game design, and then you programmed the game. Coleco didn't do that, and some of the former employees have speculated. This rings very true to me, and I think this is probably the main reason why that happened. Coleco is in Hartford, Connecticut... Atari and Mattel are in California. Atari's in Silicon Valley. Mattel's in LA area, Southern California. The skill set to be both a programmer and a designer, to have both the creative brain and the logical brain, that is a really rare skill set. That's a tough call. There's a smaller percentage of people to have that. California has a huge population of tech people. Because of Silicon Valley, because of the California University system and how many of those schools are great technical schools, because of all of this, because of Stanford as well, the private university, there is a huge talent pool in California. Therefore, if you are looking for an applicant for a program or game designer position, you're going to get dozens, maybe even hundreds of applicants that are all very proficient you're going to have your pick of the litter. You're going to be able to whittle down that group of 200 just to choose a random number until you find the two or three guys that have that really rare skill set. It doesn't matter if only 5%, and that's just a made-up number, but it doesn't matter if only 5% of programmers are also good designers. You have so many programmers that are going to apply to work for you that you can find those 5%, right? hmm Well, that's not true in Connecticut. Connecticut's on the East Coast. The East Coast is not considered as much of a tech coast. Even though you have MIT, even though you have the Route 128 Tech Corridor around Boston and MIT, and that's not far away from Connecticut, even though you have IBM that's headquartered in New York, these are companies and uh, universities and people that are used to dealing in mainframes and mini computers. They have a completely different paradigm. I mean, you look at some of the stuff that comes out of the Boston tech scene, you're talking Infocom, which is making these elaborate text adventures, creating these virtual machines to run them, and doing all of this very mini-computer, mainframe computer kind of stuff. Later on, you have Looking Glass, Blue Sky, which becomes Looking Glass, which is doing these incredibly advanced things like Ultima Underworld. It's a different type of of mindset based more on high-end performance machines than video games. The video game people are all in California. A lot of the Coleco employees themselves have speculated that because they had a lower talent pool, the programmers that they could get to come work for them and make video games weren't necessarily also great designers, so they had to look outside of the programming community to find people to design the games. They actually end up pulling from the early tabletop RPG group. Dungeons & Dragons hits in the mid-70s. TSR remains a pretty small company in the mid to late 70s. The wargaming community that D&D came out of, that role-playing games came out of, already had a very do-it-yourself kind of hackerish create your create-your-own-rule-set mentality. D&D itself was created by a couple of people that were basically amateur game designers that decided to create a rule set. And then Gary Gygax formed a company around it, and and the rest is history. After D&D started hitting big in college campuses and and with young people, TSR itself didn't have the resources to create a lot of follow-up product, to do a lot of adventures and whatnot. So you got other small companies like Judges Guild that were also popping up you had other amateur wannabe game designers that, were, that had submitted scenarios to fanzines and this kind of thing that were able to come in and start creating professional product. Then that drew the attention of Coleco. So during this period, ARD is working on all this video game stuff, but they're not just working on video games. They're also working on advanced electronic toy products as well. One interesting project that they had going uh, that never actually saw the light of day was a device that combined a barcode reader with a speech synthesizer. Uh, And it was phoneme-based synthesis, which means you could get a pretty decent amount of speech in there just by combining different sounds. What they were planning to do is actually something that eventually did appear in stores much later, this idea that you'll have a book of some kind could be a children's book, could be something more advanced, but this book will have places where you can use a little wand or a little barcode reader, and there will be speech that plays out when you scan that barcode. Children's books did end up doing that, but I think in general much later than that. I mean, I don't know the history of that. They had this thing pretty far along in terms of the technology working, but it turns out, at least according to Schenk, that Arnold Greenberg nixed it because he thought the accent was really weird. He thought it sounded Czechoslovakian. He thought it would be very difficult for children to actually understand what was being said. So because of that, the product never came out. They wanted a RPG for this toy, so they hired a guy named Mike Stackpool. Yes, that Mike Stackpool for you Star Wars novel fans out there, the Mike Stackpool that created the X-Wing series of novels. Before that, he was a game designer. They hired Mike Stackpool as a contractor to work on this system. Mike Stackpool and a friend of his, Janelle Jakeways. Now, I have to take a moment to explain this. It's, it's always tricky, and you always want to be respectful. Janelle Jakeways, very accomplished game designer, both tabletop and uh, computer gaming, video gaming, she at that time presented his mail. At the time of the events in question was Paul Jakeways. That's the only time I'm going to mention that name out of respect for her and especially out of respect for her wishes that people don't really refer to the other name. We certainly have to mention it once because otherwise if you go and try to look in historical sources and are like, I want to find more Janelle Jakeway stuff, you'll be like, why isn't there anything from 1980 with that name? That's the reason why. So mention it once, but Janelle Jakeway's who had started a fanzine in the early days of D&D, and then that fanzine was bought by a company, was bought by a company, ended up being run by uh, this early company called Judges Guild, and then created a couple of D&D modules for this company. So she had become a backdoor game designer. She had been a war game player, an Avalon Hill game player, and then got into the fan scene and all of that, and that's, that's how she got in. Mike Stackpool is friends with Janelle Jakeways, brings Janelle in to work on this with him. The project doesn't go anywhere. They cancel it. Both of them, because they were impressed with the work they were doing, were offered positions. Mike Stackpool decided not to stay with Coleco in a full-time position and left to do his own thing. Janelle accepts the offer and becomes a designer in the company. Even before that, they had already had designers. One of the first uh, was a guy by the name of Tom Helmer who had actually been a technician during the creation of the head-to-head games. Shink was creating head-to-head baseball. wasn't the first in the series, but it was one of the ones in the series. And Tom Helmer was a technician, but it turned out Tom Helmer had a real knack for game design. And so he really took on the game design responsibility, transitioned out of being a mere technician into being a designer. And then they ended up creating a game design group with an ARD that Tom Helmer was the initial head of. Then Janelle Jakeway's joined that group out of the role-playing game scene, tabletop scene. Then a bunch of Janelle Jakeway's friends started coming in. Lawrence Schick and Arnold Hendrick, Dennis Sostari, and several other people. We won't go into their whole backgrounds in this episode, but several other people that had made their names by doing modules for D&D and other RPGs all got into the game design business at Coleco because Coleco recognize that having a designer separate from a programmer was a desirable thing.
0: So once again, they're taking a lot of the basic concept and really refining it yet again, instead of just having a single person who's coding and designing and developing everything. We're saying, okay, we're going to have an idea to the future here. We're going to have a person who's programming, a person who's designing, a person who's doing art, a person who's doing this, that, and the other thing. We're going to segment out this stuff so that's it's done better, quicker, and we have a better
1: talent pool. And especially the game design aspect of it, because the art aspect of it, Atari was already doing by that point. had already understood that it was desirable to have a separate artist. But the idea that your programmer and your game designer, your person that was defining the parameters of the game, would be a different person than the one that was actually programming those parameters into the game, that was revolutionary. Now, it had been done in Japan a couple of times, Shigeru Miyamoto and Toru Iwatani, both uh, the creators of Donkey Kong and Pac-Man, neither of them were programmers. Iwatani was an engineer. Miyamoto was an industrial designer. They were not programmers, so they had other programmers helping them. They were specifically designers. But in the West, that was really the first time it had happened. They also did outsourcing of a lot of their programming as well, because, again, they they had programmers in-house, but they didn't have as much technical talent. There was a company in Chicago called Nuva Tech that did a lot of their programming. Some sources say that Nuva Tech actually created the ColecoVision hardware or helped create it. That does not seem to be true, but they did program some of the earliest games. They even worked with a company in Minnesota called 4D Interactive Design, that was created by some of the pioneers in RPGs. The 4D was because the four of them all had first names that began with the letter D. These were Dave Arneson, the co-creator of Dungeons and & Dragons, and with his Blackmore setting, kind of the progenitor, the guy whose idea sparked the whole RPG thing in the first place. Dave Wesley, who had been the head of the group that Dave Arneson had joined, the head of the game group, who was basically responsible for the first proto-role-playing games. David McGarry who was also an early pioneer and part of that group, and Don Nicholson. Even Dave Arneson, the co-creator of D&D, worked with Coleco on some of their games.
0: That's just kind of crazy just to think of that. It's like D&D, again, has another influence on yet another company. (laughs) It's had such an influence on a lot of PC games. It's had an influence on some arcade games. Oh, yeah. Influencing a console company as well
1: really uh, being a big influence on the separation of game designer and game programmer, because a lot of these early game designers are all coming from the tabletop realm, because the tabletop realm was kind of the first place where you had the concept of a designer that was designing mechanics and parameters in that way that naturally translate into video games. Yeah, they're pioneering the idea of a game designer. They're basically inspiring Nintendo and Sega. To create their own consoles, but they just can't quite make it themselves. Now, the company survives. You know, I mentioned that sales tripled in 1983, despite the fact that the Atom was a failure. They took a loss for the year, but sales tripled. Sales tripled in 1983 because they discovered a little thing called Cabbage Patch. Cabbage Patch Kids. We won't go into the history of Cabbage Patch. It was not created by Coleco. It was created by a guy down in Georgia named Xavier Roberts. He was handcrafting them. He was having them sculpted, each one unique. He converted a medical clinic to look like a delivery ward, and he had these hand-sculpted dolls. And so you'd go in and you'd pick out your unique doll. Each one had a unique face. It was kind of this nice thing, and then Coleco discovered it, licensed it, managed to retain some of that uniqueness in mass production, even though it wasn't quite the same thing, and had a ridiculous hit on their hands. So their sales exploded. 83, they still had a loss, but by 1985, they're making tons and tons of money because Cabbage Patch is so popular. There's fights in the aisles. There's shortages that first Christmas parents actually fight in the aisles jingle all the way which is a kind of bad movie but it's it's the first one i think of with this generic idea that we have of holiday toys being so popular that parents have a shoving match in the the aisle or whatever trying to get the last one right and almost like it glorifies it in that movie right but that whole stereotype goes back to cabbage patch kids where there were literally fights in the aisles between parents Real, actual, physical fights. Which is insane. Trying to get these dolls. It was the must-have toy. I mean, there had been other crazes before that in toys, but this was the first craze that was kind of this level. Tickle Me Elmo is another example a couple of decades later, or a decade and a half later. This is kind of the first of that. That becomes huge. That saves the company. If not for Cabbage Patch, ColecoVision and Adam, and the crash would have destroyed Coleco.
0: It's just funny that they pivoted away from electronics and just into Cabbage Patch, and then that saved the company, ultimately. You got, like, a leather company that transitions into electronics, transitions out of electronics to a different kind of toy that saved them from the crash of their electronics stuff.
1: Unfortunately, the, the saving is short-lived. Cabbage Patch is a fad. It sells great in 83. It sells even better in 84. It peaks in 85. It starts going down after 85. Coleco was unable to expand out of that. I think they knew the Cabbage Patch wouldn't necessarily be big forever, though I think they were hoping it would become something like Barbie that had perennial popularity. They tried to invest some of that money that they made in Cabbage Patch Kids into diversifying into other products. They just never hit on anything. They bought the company that made Trivial Pursuit because Trivial Pursuit had blown up big in the early 80s as part of a trivia fad even though Trivial Pursuit obviously still exists today and and people still play it, they bought it after it had had its peak success. Buying Trivial Pursuit didn't really give them much. They tried to create a male action figure line because this was the era of He-Man and G.I. Joe and Transformers and male action figures were big. They created something called Sectowers. There were these insect-based action figures I don't know if you remember those from the 80s. Maybe? If
0: I see them, I would be able to tell, but just the name, no.
1: I don't remember them from the 80s. I mean, I've seen stuff on them now after the fact, but I mean, I don't remember them from the 80s, which tells you how successful that was. They were offered a stuffed animal toy that was basically Cabbage Patch Kids except dogs, each one kind of unique-looking, And a nice story and marketing behind them. They turned it down because they thought it was too similar to Cabbage Patch. Well, that became Pound Puppies.
0: Really? Pound Puppies?
1: And You probably do remember Pound Puppies because those were a big hit.
0: I do. I remember the cartoon. I remember the toys. I probably still have one or two of the toys around here somewhere.
1: So they turned down Pound Puppies because they decided it was too close to Cabbage Patch. Pound Puppies became a hit, and then they tried to create their own line of animals, of stuffed animal toys, called Wrinkles, which was their attempt to try to do Pound Puppies after they turned down Pound Puppies. You know, the Wrinkles were just not popular (laughs) in the same way Pound Puppies was. So they tried all of these other things, and none of them worked, and then Cabbage Patch collapsed, so they went back into debt again, Arnold Greenberg was forced to resign in 1988. He was succeeded as a CEO by Mort Handel. He was the finance guy. He was EVP, Executive Vice President, but he was basically the finance guy because when your company's about to die and you have to make a leadership change, that's what you always do.
0: Someone needs to fall on the sword. Yeah.
1: And then you elevate the finance guy because he's supposed to be the guy that has financial discipline and knows how to get things back into the black, even if he's not a creative marketer or product guy. So Mort Handel becomes the CEO. It's just impossible to turn it around. They enter bankruptcy in 1989 after losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Their properties end up being bought up by Hasbro for a song. All the products that Coleco had created, Hasbro still to this day has the rights to. Things like Cabbage Patch continued to exist, even though they didn't do the big numbers anymore that they used to, but they became Hasbro products. That was the end of the company. They never quite got out of being a one-hit wonder. That's what kind of killed them in the end. They always had another hit. They got the Leathercrafts, and they rode Leathercraft toy kits to success in the 50s. That kept them going until they got swimming pools. Then swimming pools kept them going for a while. For a long while, I mean, over a decade. Then they hit video games, and then video games kept them going, and then just as video games were going out, they got into electronic handouts. And just as electronic handholds were going out, they got into programmable video games. And just as programmable video games were going out, they got into Cabbage Patch. They had a lot of ups and downs, particularly starting from 1970 to the end of the company in 89. They had a lot of ups and downs, but they always found that one product to keep it going a little longer but they were never able to create a broad base of products. That's only going to work for so long. If all you have are massive fad hits and you keep having to come up with another one to replace the previous one.
0: Sort of like the arcade. You had to have the yeah. big hit that works. That really drives the company.
1: Right. And eventually, no matter how good you are, no matter how good your team is, eventually you just run out of those. That's unsustainable. Because they were never able to create a broad base of product underneath those big up-and-down hits, the company finally disintegrated and is no longer with us. But a huge legacy in video games, because even though ColecoVision was short-lived, even though the Atom was a disaster, and even though everything was cut short by the crash, a big part of why Nintendo and Sega did what they did can be traced back to Coleco. So they were kind of the bridge between that early Atari era and that later uh, Japanese era with Nintendo and Sega.
0: Really... Very convoluted life plan for a leather company that goes, (laughs) I'm a leather company. I'm doing all this leather stuff. We're having fun. We're doing some game stuff with the kiddos because, yeah, why not? Oh, electronics stuff is cool. Let's make some handheld stuff, some dedicated consoles. Then we're going to make a programmable console. We're going to be an instigator in creating Nintendo and Sega at least start the seed growing. <laughs> then we're going to transition out of that whenever all the crash happened and all the disaster barely gets survived <laughs> by a uh, cabbage patch. We set the groundwork and the setup for creating games where we separate the designer, the programmer, so on and so forth from each other. Ultimately the company dies and fails, but leaves behind quite the epic legacy of just how influential they really are in shaping the video game industry in the way it is today.
1: Yeah, I don't know what it is about leather companies. I mean, one of these days we'll go in depth on that other great leather company, the Tandy Leather Company, that, of course, evolves into uh, the parent company Mm -hmm. of Radio Shack. (laughs) That is very true. Leather companies. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, why not? But that's not what we'll talk about next time. We're not... No, no. We don't want to do two leather companies in a row. They'll say we're repeating ourselves. I'm okay with that. I am not. Next time, uh, I think uh, it would be fun to kind of get in depth on a group of games. I mean, you know, we do a lot of company histories. We do some people histories. We do some big market histories. And we occasionally focus in on games as well. But games definitely take a back seat in a lot of ways to kind of company history and whatnot. So I thought it might be fun to do a look at... Activision's Atari output. Now, we've talked about Activision. We've done history of Activision episodes, but those are focused on the company, and we mention a game here and there. This game did well. That game did well. What I'm talking about is doing a deep dive on Activision's pre-crash output, from its first games in 1980 to its last BCS games limping along in 83, 84, Kind of take a look at just why Activision was special as a game design firm. They're the first third-party developers, and we talked about them economically and their significance in that. But going through, we won't cover quite every game, but going through game by game and showing some of their design goals and showing how they really pushed the technology and pushed the market forward through their games. Because, you know, that's something a little different for us and something that can certainly sustain an episode and uh, I think should be a lot of fun.
0: We will look at the wondrous design and development of Activision games next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com/song/airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons Attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons Attribution license.